Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by author and healer, Resma Menicum. Menicum is a trauma specialist who works with people, communities, and organizations to reckon with the historical and racialized trauma carried in the body. He joined us on the show back in 2020 with his New York Times bestseller, My Grandmother's Hands. In that book, he unpacked how trauma is passed down through generations and how the bodily forces that make us resilient can also encourage us to harm one another. But what does that harm actually look like in 2022? How does it manifest itself in our day-to-day lives? That question is at the heart of Resma's excellent new book, The Quaking of America. As you'll hear, this new piece of his came in response to the Capitol riots of January 6th. And as the Congressional Committee completes its seventh public hearing investigating the attack, I thought it was time we return to Resma. In the first half of our discussion, we sit with all that January 6th resurfaced, the unseemly history it harkened back to, the rampant racism that inspired it. We also talk about the problems embedded in the GOP and the Democratic Party. And then, most importantly, Resma reflects on what a potential civil war could look like should we continue down this anti-democratic track. If that sounds severe, stick with us. Side A is a diagnosis of the problem. Side B 
offers some solutions, all of which start with the body. Through somatic abolitionism, Resma offers practices to create an embodied anti-racist culture. That term anti-racist has been bandied about and bastardized in the last couple years. So we do what we can in this exchange to better define the terms of engagement when it comes to race and how white bodies can actually go about grappling with each other. To learn more about Resma and his practices, you can visit his website at resma.com. That's R-E-S-M-A-A dot com. For today, here's my conversation with Resma Menicum. Resma. Hey, hey. Welcome back to the show. Hey, man. It's my pleasure. How do you feel? I feel, let me answer it like this. I'm sleeping better um, over the last couple weeks. I am eating a lot better and I'm allowing the people that need to hold me, I'm actually allowing them to hold me in a little better way. Is that an invitation for me to hold you? I mean, if you want, if you want to hold me, I, you know, <laughs> I, I like a hug as much as the next dude. I, I appreciate you asking. <laughs> that's the kind of show. That's the kind of show we do here. <laughs> What's the recent change? Why are you sleeping better, eating better? Because the last few weeks have not been yeah good. Yeah, I've been seeing some things, particularly within the black community, that I am encouraged by, and that is. Black bodies in particular understand that we can't appeal to the better angels of white folks as it relates to liberation. And I'm starting to see particularly black women do this thing where they're just like, this is the way it is. And I'm not going to not say it because you haven't developed the requisite amount of collective grit (laughs) that you need to have in order to deal with me. So here we go. And to me, that gives me great hope for our people. Somewhere in the last few weeks, you've started to sense that appealing to the kindness of white folks Come on, man. no longer works. It, it, it never worked. <laughs> it never worked. And it, yet people did it anyway. And people did it anyway because it's a survival move. A lot of times we look at this stuff that happens between cultures and stuff like that, black bodies and white bodies, indigenous bodies and white bodies, Asian bodies and black. I mean, we we do this particular piece. And I think what ends up happening is we think that we're talking the same language and we're not. People say things like, well, we should just talk. We should just, we could get along if we could just find common ground. The first common ground has to be that I am seen as a human being first and not another species. And I'm not talking about our own personal relationships. If you don't understand that the white body deems and has deemed itself the supreme standard by which all bodies' humanity shall be measured structurally and philosophically. If you don't understand that, then everything else about our interaction with each other will confuse you. And what you need to interrogate, you won't interrogate because you'll think that the problem that's happening between me and you or the problem that's happening in the in the structure is me. And so... I think we're getting to a place to where bodies of culture in particular are saying that deal is no longer workable. Do you think that deal broke 
on January 6th of 2021? (laughs) I think January 6th was what I call the shimmering and the shaking, right? What does that mean? So shimmering for me is this idea when something is so bright that you go, Oh, that's what that is. Sometimes we walk around where things are so opaque where you can't really see it. January 6th showed people that this is what it is. The white ferality that we have has been the undercurrent of things. Oh, that's what it is, right? Many times white bodies shake when something shimmers that they can't turn away from. But what they don't do is then take that shaking and turn it into something that can actually evolve into culture, a living embodied anti-racist culture, as opposed to just being in shock and awe. And then three weeks later, keep going to Costco. It ends with the shock. It ends with the shock. The shock becomes the one and only answer and response. That's exactly right. And what ends up happening is I think white bodies in particular have this episodic understanding of things as opposed to structural understanding. So January 6th is not connected to the death of Emmett Till. The Emmett Till murder is not connected to land theft of the indigenous. The land theft of the indigenous is not connected to enslavement. And you see what I mean? They view these things as disparate events. Disparate events, and they're not connected, and they don't point to a cultural mooring. In my work, I really try and get people to understand this is a cultural mooring that we're dealing with. It's not just bad things that happen. Like I keep saying the term white virality, white virality is policy. The indigenous people of this country had an, a notion of land stewardship, being in one place, using the resources, understanding that when a certain amount of people come into that particular place in land, those resources will get depleted. You now need to leave, go someplace else. Somebody else comes in. You don't own the land. That is not the way Europeans think. (laughs) Europeans came here, many of whom were brutalized by kings and queens and the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. And then when they got here, they also had learned the perpetrator pieces too. So then they just flipped it. And the idea of ownership and ownership of land is what clashed. It was stewardship and ownership. And what you ended up having was is that the ferality in terms of exterminating the indigenous off of a land in order to privatize it and own it was policy. Manifest destiny was part of that policy. Doctrine of discovery was part of that policy. That's why in my work, I really try and get people to land on these pieces around your episodic thinking is actually dangerous at this point. A lot of this new book is connecting all these dots to create a larger cultural map. I want to focus on January 6, 2021 as a point on the map. Absolutely. Walk me through that day for you and all that you were processing as the riots on the Capitol unfolded. So um, I'm sitting downstairs watching TV and my wife calls me. She says, Rasma, come here. I run upstairs and she goes, look, because I wasn't going to watch it. You know, I, <laughs> Trump, he loves a good show. And I knew this was going to be a show. So she says, come upstairs. You have to watch. Right. You I, say what? 
I come upstairs and I'm watching. You listen to her. This is a good policy. (laughs) We're talking about policy. This is a good policy. I've been, I've been, me and my wife have been together for 25 years. I finally learned in the last year how to act right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know what they say? Better late than never. (laughs) Better late than never. So now at that time where she said, look, there wasn't as many people there. There were people were starting to mill. She goes, they actually coming. They're coming. Like that. And I was like, yeah, they coming. And so I just sat down. I grabbed my, went back downstairs, grabbed my computer every now and then would look up. Man, I'm sitting there looking at this stuff throughout the day, and at first, it's a thousand people. I'm like, okay, and then it's two thousand people. I'm like, okay, three thousand people. Now I'm starting to see the AR-15s, the cosplay, right? <laughs> you know, the terrorist cosplay. You know, now they all got on the helmets, and they. Uh, if you've never seen an AR-15 in person, it is a scary gun without being fired. It looks menacing. I'm sitting there watching. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So th- these are symbols. I think this this society has symbols of our feral past, right? When certain symbols start to show up, it speaks to the ferality. So the gun, prominent, is always about a feralness. Well, and why feralness? Because it's an untamed, it is uninterrogated, it is not looked at, it is not pulled apart and vibratorily gone through, it's not pulled apart, it is wild, but it comes off with the veneer of piousness and patriotism. And the feralness has has been woven in and around and through every institution, the economic pieces, the, the spiritual pieces, the religious, you know, education. Feralness is always present because a lot of the brutality that most white bodies that are listening to me and you talk right now are descended from white bodies that were fleeing something. That fleeing never got dealt with. And so when I'm watching that, I'm sitting there going, okay, here we go. Now I'm starting to see the gallows get erected. Then I start seeing the swastika signs and the Camp Auschwitz signs and the Jews will not replace this stuff and all that different type of stuff. Then I start to see, which is the creme de la creme for me of symbols of our feral past, the noose. There's specific reasons why those symbols show up the way that they show up and when they show up. And so right then I was like, oh, I knew this was going to explode. And the thing that got me on January 6th, the one seminal piece that got me, I no longer use the term white privilege because I I don't think it's operational enough. I think it's one of those things that when white folks say that to each other, they say it to people, everybody nods like, yes, that's white privilege. I have privilege, you know. So I actually say white advantage in a structure that's predicated on the white body deeming and has deemed itself the supreme standard of humanness. It is not a privilege to be white. It is a distinct advantage. And when you had these 6,000 people bust into the Capitol, peeing on everything, a lot of people don't know that, that they peed on everything, that they defecated on the floors, they beat up and injured 141 Capitol police officers. Think about this, man. And not one of those police officers unholstered their weapon. That's the advantage of being in a white body. I'm not talking about identity. I'm talking about a pigmentocracy. And now imagine, what if that had been 6,000 indigenous bodies, black bodies, Mexican bodies, brown bodies? Do you think one of those police officers might have unholstered their weapon? That's the advantage that we're talking about. I don't even know if one has to imagine that this has happened 
over and over in history. It's Real not. It's, it's not an imagination. Real it's talk. not some theory. Mm-hmm. In your book, My Grandmother's Hands from 2017, you wrote, while we see anger and violence in the streets of our country, the real battlefield is inside our bodies. Americans have reached a point of peril and possibility. We will either grow up or grow smaller. This trauma will either burst forth in an explosion of dirty pain or provide the necessary energy and heat for white Americans to move through clean pain and heal. Do you, in 2022, five years removed from that, do you still believe in that either or between peril and possibility? I I may have said it to where it sounds either or, but I've always believed that they're both necessary pieces to growth. And let me say this piece. I don't believe particularly white Americans even know that there's anything to grow up through as it relates to race, collectively. So one of the things I've been doing lately at my um, book signings and, and events and stuff like that, I've been asking white bodies this question. You literally saw an attempted coup of this country. You saw that. How many of you went and got weapons trained, self-defense, put together a uh, safety plan for you and your family? How many of you saw that and that changed the way you began to teach about culture and history to your children? Maybe out of all the events that have maybe one person, white person who's raised their hand, most white bodies don't understand the gravity of what happened. I don't think most white people and most white bodies as a collective see this as something that is going to change the way that they live, period. And in fact, one major change in you in the last two years from an interview you did a couple months ago was you said, I had the belief that if white bodies got enough information, then they would do something different. But that's been dispelled. Mm -hmm. I don't think information is the curative element. And I read that quote, and I wonder how do we not let that sentiment paralyze the conversation between us? Yeah. So that's not my job. So that's the first thing I'll say. I, my, the issue is not the paralyzation or, or being paralyzed. The issue is, are you going to take what is happening as real energy to be able to transform you towards liberation for your people, period. Your paralyzation and your shock really is an impediment to your own liberation. I'm not trying to get white people to be unparalyzed. I'm trying to get white people to actually examine the paralysis so something new can emerge. Mm -hmm. Don't center me. (laughs) Center the fact that stuff happens And your collective response is paralysis. Work with that. Here's what happens is that many times what happens is that white bodies are looking for a black guru, an Indian guru, a Asian, right? They're looking for somebody to shelter them and show them through the wilderness. That ain't my job. And it needs to stop being bodies of culture's job to do that. Because here's the deal. My liberation is not your liberation. So be about the business of going towards your liberation. And if you ask me a question, I'm going to, I'll answer you. But don't set me up and set our relationship up before anything even gets started. So as two people, let's figure this out. With the January 6th hearings in Congress, there's been 
a renewed conversation about just what happened that day on the Capitol. Many members of the GOP have done all sorts of mental gymnastics to either rewrite, rationalize, or erase what many of us saw in plain view on our television screens. As you write in the new book, some Republicans have spun the January 6th carnage and chaos as simultaneously a minor incident overblown by the media, a legitimate and victorious fight for freedom and American values, a murderous, despicable plot by Black Lives Matter and Antifa, a faked false flag incident meant to hoodwink the American public, a top-secret FBI operation, and a normal, peaceful visit by a batch of tourists. Each of these explanations that I just read have been covered in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, the New York Times, and the New Yorker. Clearly, there's some contradictory claims in there. Why do you think those contradictions seem to fall by the wayside of Republican voters? Mm. I don't think it just falls by the wayside of Republican voters. Democratic voters. Yeah, yeah. Even independent. Yeah. Green parties. Yeah. Does that still exist? You see what I mean? People still doing green parties? <laughs> People still doing green parties. See, it's just see, Jill Stein out there. That's right. That's right. Here's the thing, man. I really think that People facing what you just read would involve a level of cultural courage that collectively really doesn't exist, right? So a couple of days ago, this thing came out in the paper where Biden has just done this backdoor deal with McConnell to get this right-wing judge through in the district, mm -hmm. right? And everybody was up in arms about it. Like, how dare you, especially after Roe versus Wade? Why would you, you know, this guy's a, a, you know, he's a bad guy. So why would you do a deal with him? And one of the things I've been saying to people lately, man, is this. Y'all keep sitting here acting like this country is not founded on a conservative ideal. It has never been a progressive country, right? When we say the middle, the middle always is back to conservative. The let's go back to, you know, a, the good old days. And we think that the good old days for white folks is the 1950s. Actually, what they're talking about is the organization of the plantation. The primary organizational structure of this country is not the Constitution. It's not the Declaration of Independence. It is the plantation. This is why you can have somebody like Manchin and Cinema be talking to Joe Biden about how do we get these particular things done and stuff like that. And they have synergy with each other because that idea of right order, of tradition, that idea of we can argue and fight, but then we can go have a beer together is so normalized in the Democratic Party. This is why the Democratic Party does not know how to use power. The Democratic Party knows how to curry favor. Obama did it. Clinton did it. This genuflect to the third way, this genuflect to this idea that there's another way. When you are looking across the table from people who don't believe you are a human being and you're going to try and figure out another way to charm them or get them to see their, the better parts of this piece. A lot of this stuff happens because there is synergy around conservatism. And I think we end up going into it in ways that doesn't allow us to really make real change, but actually compromise parts of ourselves. And in addition, that compromise parts of our humanity in order to do this bargain. So both on the left and the right, when you hear these conflations and, and, and 
Good rewrites yeah. of what happened on the 6th. You say it has nothing to do with a message that is cognitive. Mm-hmm. Each is designed to speak directly to our bodies, right. not our cognitive brains. Right. What do you mean by that? So dog whistles, right? The way that do- what we call dog whistles work is that it really taps into the prevailing cultural philosophy that exists about people, right? So you don't have to say the N-word. You just put the things around it and people fill in the blanks about the N-word, right? And so those ideas are true on both sides. It's like the old thing, the right wing, left wing are all part of the same racist bird. And that's the way I see this thing. And that's so for me, this piece around being able to grapple with it and work with it means that you have to understand what it is. And I don't believe we really understand what it is. I think these dog whistles are really unexamined, especially from the Democratic side. They think if you have the right argument and you stand on truth and foundation, that that's enough. And you're entering into a gunfight with a butter knife. You don't know how to use power. You've mentioned a couple of times now how Democrats don't know how to use power. One of the quotes in the book, you cite Rick Wilson, formerly, <laughs> yep. formerly one of uh, the GOP's chief strategists. And he says, Democrats too often want a focus group pablom policy answer when the world is burning down around them. Republicans know the Democrats will play by the rules while they play by none at all. <laughs> Democrats are too politically blind to see the words fuck you scribbed on the page in Trumpian Sharpie. It's a choice between an aggressive, hard-edged defense of democracy or accepting the end of our nation as we know it. Mm -hmm. That's it. When I was coming up, I had to deal with a couple bullies. No matter how much I tried to appeal to them, can't we just be friends? Can we play on recess? Can we do this? When was that? This was third, fourth, fifth grade. And I remember going into eighth grade thinking, this ain't going to work. I'm going to have to figure something out in order to preserve my own being, (laughs) right? I remember when I went to junior high, I went there with one of my bullies who happened to be going to the same school. And I remember he tried the same stuff. And what was that? He used to do stuff like slap me in the back of the neck and think it was funny and stuff like that. No matter how many times I said, hey, hey, stop doing that. He's like, ah, shut up. Right? And I'd be like, God, you know. And one time I'd see him out the corner of my eyes and I knew he was coming. And I turned around and hit him so hard in the middle of his chest that he backed up against the locker and could hardly breathe. That was the last time he did that. Now, I'm not saying people need to go around punching everybody. I'm saying you're not speaking the same language. He didn't understand the language of please stop. He was only fluent in I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. And I think this is funny. And until I change the way that I'm talking, nothing was going to shift. That's the way I think about us thinking that we're going to talk our way out of people who want to go into a grocery store with an AR-15 and shoot black people, who want to go into a church and shoot parishioners after they've prayed for you. That has never been workable for black people. Indigenous people saying, don't run this pipeline 
through my ancestral grounds. Please don't let oil spill on places that my people have been here since the beginning. Please do something in your law, in your heart, that will see me as a human being. And it doesn't happen. The United States has violated every treaty. And I just don't see bodies of culture getting anywhere with this kind of church of normalism type thing that we keep trying to go back to. In the nature of your book, maybe we pause on that for a second. Can I say something right quick? And it, it actually goes back to something you said earlier around the tone of me now. I think my grandmother's hands was a invitation. A friend of mine said that my grandmother's hands was like a warm blanket. This is like a dark alley. It is. It's because I've been working with a lot of white bodies about this piece around cultural development. And I really believe it's going to take nine to 13 generations before white bodies ever know what this is about race. I'm more convinced of that now than I was when I wrote my grandmother's hands. Because of the experiences you've had in the interim. And an experience that I've had in the interim with white bodies that I actually care for and love, that we're building stuff with, and watching them come to some realization about what this actually is as opposed to what they thought it was. They thought it was going to be a way for them to get better. Do you think part of that is this kind of hyper-focus on solutions? Yes. And a general inclination in people, but especially white people. Yeah. To be absolved. Yes. It's the thing that we keep backing into with the training that I'm doing, is that they think there is a marker where they'll go, bling, like something will be bestowed out of the sky and they'll get it. And what they're starting to understand, at least the white bodies that I'm working with, is that this is not bestowal, this is emergence. And you have to pay attention to what is emerging in real time and then be able to look at the patterning across time. And how that patterning shows up individually, interculturally, collectively. That type of work white bodies have never done as it relates to race specifically. One of the dodges that white bodies do a lot of times is that they either genuflect to identity as some type of subjugated identity as a way to get around the white pieces. What do you mean by that? So white bodies will be talking with each other and something will happen and they'll go. If their subjugated self is trans, they'll hold the subjugated self as centered without dealing with the white pieces. So they use the subjugation to get around the white pieces, mm -hmm. right? And, or I'm poor and white. I tell people the story about somebody that I love dearly, my agent, and that we've been friends for a very long time, Jewish guy. He helped you co-write this book. He helped me co-write, yep. Absolutely. Um, that's how I write. I go over to his house. We sit there. We put the, put the recorder on, and that's how we get to it. And then he asks questions. He's not a therapist. He's not a black man. So he asks questions that I would normally gloss over because if I'm talking to black folks or black audience, they kind of know a lot of the stuff, right? And so one of the things that happened is that while we were writing and sending stuff back and forth, he kept conflating identity and body. And I would cross it out and i say, that's not it. Then finally one day it happened again. I called him. I said, hey, man, we got to talk. He's like, what's going on? I said, you got to stop doing that. You got to stop. He said, what are they the same thing? I said, no, they're not. And I said, and he said, have you, you've said this to me before. I said, dude, I done said this to you so many times, right? 
I said, they're not the same thing. He said, okay, say it one more time. And here's what I said. I said, let me give you an example. I said, let's say me and you are both Jewish. I'm Jewish and you're Jewish. We done been through bar mitzvahs. We done been through everything. Like all of this, we done been through every piece, right? And let's say we're at the temple and then we leave the temple and we're walking down the street having a good conversation and we're talking. And then all of a sudden the police show up and want to talk to us. Are we having the same experience? And he goes, oh, I said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you won't have a bad experience. I'm saying the experience of race will shape it. And so for me, there are all of these dodges that when I'm working with these white bodies, they're now starting to begin to work with some of these pieces and they're starting to see. Oh, because I've had people in my white bodies in my group when I say it's going to take at least nine generations before y'all know what's going on. They get offended. <laughs> I should know that. I mean, I, I, I'm a knower and I, I'm a reader and I've read my grandmother's hands and white, you know, fragility and all. And this is a different type of knowing. This type of emergent knowing is different. Invariably, in these back and forths, you have a lot of people like the people you just described. Mm-hmm. They read my grandmother's hands. They're going to read Quaking of America. Some of these people protested. But my human nature question is, this guilt that people are thinking about and actually trying to feel for the first time, do you feel that some of these white folks in your class, for example, do you feel like they are trying to simply move past the guilt or are they trying to actually live with it? Mm, mm. Let me say this. I don't believe the overriding experience for white bodies is guilt. I believe that is the most surface thing that shows up. And then people assume that they do what I call, uh, and my mentor said, is part whole confusion. They take part of a thing and make it the whole of the thing. What does that mean? So if guilt shows up in a white body, then the issue that they're dealing with must be guilt. It's not guilt. It's so much more than that. And because it's uninterrogated, they land on the thing that's the easiest. And that's the idea that there's guilt. I think there's grief. I think there is terror. I think there's horror. I think there is a genuflect to escape. I think there's collapse. All of that's in there. And people couch it as the term guilt. For some of the white bodies that I'm working with, they are starting to move into those other pieces and be curious about those other pieces. So if guilt does show up, it is not the organizing structure that we believe it is. It begins to be one of those things to lean into, to be curious about both individually and collectively with other white bodies, as opposed to the thing that you use to stop you from growing up. And I think for a lot of white bodies, culturally, they use guilt or really kind of jarring emotional things as opportunities to stop, not opportunities to metabolize, not opportunities to grow, not opportunities to expand. Like January 6th. Like January 6th. For some people, that was an opportunity to inquire. And for others, white bodies, that was an opportunity to stop, to give in to the overwhelm and never come back to it. The white bodies that I work with, They may do that. They may give in to the overwhelm. But one of the things that happens if they're with a triad, they keep coming back. Some of the bodies that you're working with would consider themselves 
allies. <laughs> they would when they first came in. They don't know more. <laughs> That's why you started laughing because you listen, man, this ally stuff. One of the first questions I ask people when they say I'm an ally is how would I know that if you hadn't have told me? Well, this ally stuff, here's what you had to say about it okay. in 2020. It's bullshit, man, because allyship is a verb. It is not a place, right? It is not a moniker. It is not a Cub Scout or a Girl Scout badge you put on, right? It is a lifelong pursuit of getting better in terms of race. How are you raising your children? How are you naming your children? What ancestors do you commune with? Who are your heroes as it relates to anti-racist practices and culture? That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about performative allyship. I'm talking about being a dog and realizing that you're seeding the ground and you're probably not going to see the fruit. But you're seeding the ground for white, and I'm talking about white allies, for a culture to be built by which the charge of race can be contained and then something new can emerge up out of it. That's what I'm talking about. You can tell me you're an ally, and the first thing I'm going to ask you is, who are your people? And you're going to look at me like, what? Who are your people? I'm not interested in your individual leanings. I'm interested in who are the people that are going to hold you accountable? Who are the people that are going to admonish you? And then you come back and you get more of it because you realize that your transformation into being a person who can literally begin to uh, undermine white body supremacy in your white body, that you keep coming back for that because you don't want to pass this sickness down to your children's 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 children. That's allyship to me. I couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> that there's a part in there, man, that I really want, particularly white bodies, to understand. If you ain't about that dog, when it comes to developing a living embodied anti-racist culture, I mean that dog, like, we're going to ride and we're going to make this happen. We're going to bury each other. We're going to, if you ain't doing that and, you, and really about developing a culture with this, I don't really have no use for it because I can't trust you. I need to see you up against yourself. I need to know that you are about that life. And there ain't a lot of white folks that are about that life. They understand that when you are about that dog with this, you're going to lose people. You're going to lose access. You're going to lose stature. The seductive quality for you to go back to what you were doing is going to increase and if you don't, if you ain't building this with other white bodies, when that happens, you're going to give it up. And so this building of stamina, this conditioning, this tempering, that's allyship. Everything else is that white bodies love declarations of independence from other white bodies. They love it. They want to be the good one. All white bodies think they're the good ones. And yet black bodies Bodies of culture can't even get you to even talk about land back, can't even get you to talk about reparations, that there was a rupture and we want repair. And that is a non-starter for you. When I'm talking about allyship, I'm talking about them dogs. Anything other than that, I don't really have time for. You wrote once, most white bodies have no interest in being in community with other white bodies. 
They will live next to other white bodies. They will have white neighborhoods. But communal means intimacy, creating a living, embodied, anti-racist culture. Not being not racist. There's no such thing as not racist. It's either you're doing everything you can to usher a living, embodied, anti-racist culture, or you're complicit by saying nothing, doing nothing. That's it. It's either you're doing something to destroy this and work it down and build something else, or you're complicit. And don't nobody call me and send me, after you listen to this, send me something on my email talking about, I'm this, I'm that, I've done this. I married a black woman. I married an uh, Asian man. I do, like, I don't, that, no, that's not, that, that has nothing to do with what you're supposed to be doing, right? And this is why I talk the way that I talk. Like, I want to make sure that you understand my piece in the most straightforward way possible. Because here's one of the things I know about America, and they did it to every one of my ancestors. The moment one of my ancestors, one of my elders became ancestors and died, white America began to use the words to paint them into be something that they weren't. You would swear by the way we have all of these MLK breakfasts and everything, that that man was not a revolutionary. That man was, he was the most hated man in America. But you can't tell now. The man had revolutionary ways of understanding things. But you can't tell now. The man, towards the end of his life, questioned nonviolence in the middle of a rabid terroristic structure like we have right now. Mm -hmm. he, he, that's what he began to talk in those terms. And so what I want to make sure is that when I pass and become an ancestor, that I want white bodies who start to begin to quote me. I want other white bodies saying he didn't say that. I heard him say it like this. And that's what he meant. When I pass, I don't want to give no room for white folks to take anything I've written, anything I've done, anything I record. I don't want white folks to take that and make it their own and make me something that's not useful to my people. It's disrespectful to the work that in particular Martin Luther King did and who he was and what he was doing. It is disrespectful. And that's the point. That's how white body supremacy functions. And it doesn't matter if you're a corpse or not. It will make you into something to suffice pushing white body supremacy forward just another inch. I don't think people fully grapple with what it means to transform someone's life and work and turn it into a holiday, a street sign, an Instagram quote. Yeah, this is the point of it, is to make it unusable and not useful for the people that are left. I've been watching people quote, Malcolm X. I'm like, how are you? I, it's just, it's, it's one. Of, and so that's why I say about white folks is that I'm interested in creating a culture that understands the nuance of how this stuff functions and then something in them gnaws at them. For most white folks, what I'm saying about MLK, that doesn't gnaw at them. It gnaws at me. Right. And the reason why it gnaws at me is because the gnawing over time can turn into knowledge and embodied knowledge. In this culture, we've been taught to get rid of the gnawing, yoga it away, drug it away, whatever it is, just get it away. Right. Whatever's and nagging at you. Whatever's nagging at you. And what you don't realize is that that energy that's nagging at you is actually health. 
So when something is nagging at you, that means you have enough of a self to know that something is off, something is wrong, something shouldn't be the way that it is. That's actually health showing itself to you. And you want to get rid of it. And when you get rid of it, you get rid of the very power that you need for your liberation. When you get rid of it, when you successfully yoga the gnawing out, you have just created a vacuum and you've just created another conundrum that you're going to back into. When the gnawing stops, the fuel that would actually be used for your liberation also stops. We'll be right back after a quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation, with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. The things that are gnawing at you, it's your body having a response. Right. A body that sometimes knows better than the brain. Yep. Many times. Hard to trick the body. It's, it's hard. I'm going to say this to you. If you've ever been in a relationship with somebody that you know you shouldn't be in that relationship with, 
that knowing is not bad. That knowing is the integrity part of you saying, hmm, you know what you're doing. That's that dirty pain, right? Clean is when you say, I'm done. Throughout the book, you come back to a specific way of working with this pain. Mm -hmm. Most of that is through these body practices. One of the body practices is one called the mirror. Mm -hmm. What does one do in this practice? <laughs> so a lot of the practices are either practices that through the training that I've been doing with people just emerges or the work that I've been doing myself, something emerges. I was like, ooh, I really didn't want to do that. <laughs> there was this, um, this story that I heard about how Gus, uh, who used to train Mike Tyson, how he told Mike Tyson, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that one day you will be the heavyweight champion of the, of the world. The things that you do, I don't see anybody being able to stop, right? But you will not be heavyweight champion if you don't do these things. Mm -hmm. And he said, Mike, you come in and you do the things that you'd like to do, and that's it. What I need you to start doing is doing the things that you don't like to do like you love them. Mm. <laughs> right? And, and that's some of the practices in this That's book. what the practices are about, is getting to those places, finding those edges, and then beginning to say, how can I do it every day like I love it? You know how I know it's true? Because I started doing them. Yeah. And I got to tell you something. <laughs> Don't like them that yeah. much. <laughs> that's right. I like you. Right. I'm glad we're here. Yeah. Some of these practices? Yeah. Not so much. Pain in the ass. That's right. That's right. That's the point. That is exactly the point. And now do that like you love it and then see what comes from that and then do that with other bodies and see what comes from that. So let's talk about a few of them. Right. So the mirror. The mirror will force you up against pieces that you can get around when your clothes are on. So the mirror invites you to get a, a mirror so you can see your whole body, right? Take your clothes off, not in front of the mirror, off to the side. And then step in front of the mirror, right? This is the conditioning and tempering. This is not the race, right? This is the preparation. This is getting, I know I got to get up 350 shots a day in order to understand nuance of the shot, right? No, don't conflate these things. I like taking the jump shots. Yeah. I don't like getting in the mirror, no. seeing myself no, it's naked. The, listen, it's the same process. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just because you don't like it, don't mean that is not, it is the same process. You like, listen, you like taking jump shots. You like hooping, right? Mm -hmm. There's parts of your game that are weak. I don't even need to see you play. What did and you say? I, there's <laughs> Come again? Come again. There are parts of your game. On my show. Yeah, on my show, you come. How dare you? There are parts. Now, my 15 footer is. <laughs> hey, that's cool, right? But if you're going to play, let me put it this way if you were going to play in the NBA, there are parts of your game that are weak. And if you were ever going to make it, you're going to have to figure out what those parts are and do it like you love it mm -hmm. in order to be even on the same court. So the mirror forces you to deal with those pieces that you can hide with clothes. And that 
begins to condition you and temper your nervous system to be able to withstand and understand nuance, right? To understand disgust. So when, so the first time I did it, I got in front of, and I work out every day. I do all of this different type of stuff. So you're supposed to hold it, look at yourself in the mirror for 60 seconds. That's about 59 seconds too long. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm saying. So here's the deal. You're a white, not you, but you're a white ally and you're going to come to me and tell me you're a white ally. And the way that you are able to feel confident in telling me that is because you have just declared your white ally. My move to ask you, how would I know that if you hadn't told me, is about what are the reps you've been putting in. And if you can't handle yourself in the mirror and handle the disgust that shows up and handle the guilt that shows up and handle all of those pieces that show up, how are you going to be my ally if you can't even do that with yourself? That's why the practices are the way that they are. It's designed to put that right up against you and go, oh, now what does it take for me to now hold and be in the mirror? I could only hold it for one second this time and I had to put my clothes back on. What would it take in terms of conditioning and tempering me for me to hold it for three seconds? Mm. Some people can make it to the 60 seconds the first time. What they've done really is just dissociate it. Then they begin to ask, oh, do I dissociate all the time when it comes to stuff? Now you're beginning to work with it and then something new can emerge. So the practices, in order for you, you have to get your shots up. This is just a way to get your shots up. When you stood in the mirror for 60 seconds. I didn't, I, I still haven't gotten to 60. You haven't gotten to 60? Mm-mm. What's the longest you went? 47. 47 seconds. Mm-hmm. You, Resma, naked in the mirror. Yeah. What do you see? At the beginning... I was actually dissociating a lot. I would be there, but I wouldn't be present. And then I realized I was doing it. So then I went all the way back where I could get up to 35 seconds. And I realized, well, one of the reasons I was getting up to 35 seconds because I wasn't actually there. And then I went all the way back and started again and tried to be there and then notice, oh, my stomach is one of the things that, you know, like this piece, you know. And forward-wise, I can look good, right? I can do the things. I can maybe do something. Then I noticed I was performing for myself. Like bring my chest up or just to try and, you know, work with the disgust pieces. Right. And I could do that pretty well. But then turning to my left side and seeing that silhouette, that one, that got me. Had I not been doing it, I wouldn't have even known that. And Mm. so now I start to begin to work with those pieces, start to begin to go, okay, this I can only do for two seconds. And then after I'm done, stuff starts to also unwind, like about messages and about being a black male body and it's just, you know, all of that different type of stuff that has to come up. And then I write and I soul scribe and I work with that. And then I read what I, what I wrote later. And then I come back again. That's why I do the practices, right? I know, I know people don't like them, but it's the most important thing in terms of creating a container that can actually hold this charge. And that's not even like the mirror thing is not even necessarily about race. Right. But the conditioning is you're conditioning your nervous system. So as race appears, you can actually work with it as opposed to it just taking you over and taking you out. What do you mean by that? So 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 we have all of these reflexive things that we do when race comes up. Right. We protect. We we move away. We collapse. We annihilate all those different types of things. If you don't start getting reps in on that, you won't even know what's happening. And so when your inner Karen shows up, 
it'll shock you as much as shocking everybody else, right? And these practices are designed to help you work with your inner Karen. So it shows up in little nibbles as opposed to full-fledged in the grocery store. Let's go through a couple more of these practices okay. right. so that people at least, as they get the book or they have the book, mm-hmm. they, can, they can reflect on them. Mm-hmm. Another one of the body practices I liked was this one called standing in your integrity. Mm-hmm. Walk us through that. So in many of these practices, I talk about what I call a somatic elicitation. Somatic elicitation is basically you come up with a story or some type of experience, and then you notice what is being elicited somatically in the body. And so that particular practice really is about when you say a time where I stood in my integrity, just saying that to yourself and trying to think of it creates a quaking. It creates like this rocking back and forth, right? You may not even get to that thing that you believe in which you stood in your integrity. You may never get to that. Just the idea of saying, I am going to come up with a story in which I was standing in my integrity may start to begin to get things cooking and quaking. To me, that's as much a part of the practice as actually being able to come up with a story because you're working with the energy of what do I believe integrity is? How do I sense integrity? What have I been told about? Like all of those questions start to begin to come in and it comes in and you begin to work with it as nibbles as opposed to when some type of life event happens and you're being asked to stand in your integrity. Somebody comes and says, how come you haven't supported you know, this particular thing around race and you get overwhelmed and you either say, well, here, I can do it now or you get overwhelmed and you recede back, right? What these practices do is say, okay, let's get some smaller nibbles on that first so you can actually see what you're really made of. This particular thing is tied to your purpose. That purpose, doing it every day is what this is about. I was thinking about what your purpose is in 2022. Mm-hmm. Because you said earlier that your last book in 2017 was an invitation. This new book, The Quaking of America, is set in a dark alley. Yeah. And throughout this book, part of that dark alley that you use as the backdrop is the potential for a civil war. Mm-hmm. You say in 2022... In 2024, there will be a Republican Party that seeks to control and grow its power through inciting violence by millions of its followers throughout as much of the country as possible. What you're describing in this book is a kind of guerrilla warfare. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question because I'm watching you as you're asking this. Yeah. As you're reading that and you're hearing me and you've read the book, what comes up for you when you hear that I'm describing a type of guerrilla warfare. I'm describing terrorism. What comes up for me? Yeah. Well, that's two-pronged. Yeah. You're asking what comes up for me right now in front of you, or are you asking what came up for me in the days preparing? Right now in front of me. To use your practice, I feel a knot right here in my chest. I feel... um, My hands grow clammy. I notice my posture stiffen. I feel my throat hurts. A collection of discomfort. That's what comes up. 
so the question that you were getting ready to ask about, you know, who, who am I and, you know, what, what's my purpose in 2022 to 2024? That purpose is really that piece, is getting people to slow down enough to what you saw on January 6th was not an ending. It was a continuation and a beginning of, of what I call a um, unencumbered ferality. This country was founded in an unencumbered ferality. That reach back to that unencumbered ferality is what keeps coming up in policy, in we can't teach about slavery and we can't teach about genocide and we can't teach, right? All of those are about an unencumberedness and what you just described in terms of what you were experiencing in front of me is that piece that I really want, particularly white bodies, to start to begin to come to grips with, that that stuff is happening anyway, right? It's not something that Resma is doing. So for me, 2024 is more of me, at least in terms of my purpose, continuing to kind of say, this is what it is. This is what I see. And this is what I think is important. It's funny. I wasn't going to ask you what your purpose is in the years to come. Okay. But I like your answer anyway. <laughs> okay. All right, all right. All right. Good. What were you going to ask me? What I was going to ask you is that was holding the body practices that are healing with the bloodshed described in this book and how we understand the intersection of those two. That is the story of America, right? I mean, healing, wanting healing, wanting something else, wanting something that's more sustainable. And the reality of genocide, of 250 years of rape on my people, right? Like in my books, I think what I really try and do is give people an understanding of what I see the, this warring for the American soul has always been about the ideals that we profess to be and the reality that happens to people in this pigmentocracy. President Joe Biden, his slogan, remember what it was? Mm -mm. It is a battle for the soul of this country. Yeah. In 1960, there was a presidential debate between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. As we think about the midterms, I want to bring this up. Mm -hmm. JFK said this, I believe that this party, the Republican Party, has stood still really for 25 years. I believe it's my responsibility as the leader of the Democratic Party to try to warn the American people that in this crucial time, we can no longer afford to stand still. Mm -hmm. And that quote, which is 42 years removed now, mm -hmm. has replayed through my head these last two years, as the Democratic Party has stood still. It stood still on protecting voting rights. It stood still on police reform. Yep. It stood still on abortion. It yep. stood still on climate change. Earlier, we talked about this question of paralysis yeah. around white people. Yeah. Is the Democratic Party paralyzed yes. or is it in paralysis? And ultimately, come election day in November, is there really any difference? Yeah. So remember, the Democrats were once 
Republicans. Remember the parties? The Dixiecrats. The Dixiecrats, right? So I think this idea that there is this stark difference between the philosophical ethos of these two parties, I think is is a mis- just, it's not true. I think the way that they go about it, you know, may be different. But I think the fecklessness of Democrats is perfectly in line with the brutality of the Republicans. I think, right, I think they dovetail with each other. and One side of the same coin. Yeah. And I'm not so much worried about the Democrats and Republicans. What I'm saying is, how are we going to stop assuming that what we have currently is the only way to be? I think there are two different energies and movements, right? There's the fixer energy and there's the builder energy. What I'm talking about is the builder stuff. Who, how are we going to build this infrastructure that's predicated on a living, embodied, anti-racist culture? If you look at America, it emulated a lot of stuff from the kind of king-serfdom relationship, right? And I think what John F. Kennedy said in an ideal is an important thing to say. problem is, is that there was no operational way to accomplish that. He would have... In order to accomplish that in a way that was true, you would have to contend with the ferality. And many times, whenever there's a possibility of ferality among white people, among white bodies, there's always a compromise. And the compromise is usually bodies of culture. Always. No matter like, like the, the, the compromise with the Civil War and, and Reconstruction. There's always a price to be paid, and that price is always some freedom or something snatched from subjugated people. Or in the case of the Biden presidency, voting rights. Exactly right. Exactly. There's always that. Think about this. The most loyal voter for the Democrats has been black women. You couldn't tell that by what black women get from this party. And I think that's designed. That's not a mistake. That is by design. I, lo- I love. I love when you just start laughing at me. I'm. 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 I. am i am not laughing at you. Let me tell you what's going on in my head as we're as we're doing this. We're sitting here talking real raw about some things, and I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder if he's prepared for the emails. I'm wondering if he understands what we're saying and the reflexiveness that happens after this airs. That's what the the smiling is about, is I'm wondering if you understand what I'm saying and what that reaction, that reflexive reaction is to your in your audience. And what do you think those emails sound like? <laughs> Can I speak to your manager, please? I just, I just, I don't, I, some variation of that. Like I was, you know, do you realize I was in a car with my child and, and you had that black racist on, I mean, mm-hmm. that, I just. Then I, then I think we've done our job. Oh, okay. I'm glad to hear that. And if that's the response, you know, we'll start giving out a fake email. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I feel that if that's the response from our conversation, which has been full-hearted. Yes, right. Expansive. Open, intimate. Then I think 
I have failed mm. in some way because this is not the first conversation we've had about this. You're not the only person we talk about these subjects with. Mm-hmm. And if that is the response, then that's a failure on my part. I would you know, respectfully disagree with that. I'd say, I would say it's actually success on your part. It's whether or not you can tolerate the type of success it is. We live in a, in a structure that's predicated on this stuff not being surfaced and visible. You making it visible is a success whether or not somebody can tolerate it or not. This is a mild, mild thing to tolerate. Yeah. In contrast to what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, I don't think it's worth, you know what, I say that. I may forward you some of these. <laughs> Don't forward them to me. I get my own. Believe me. <laughs> I get. I get my own. I don't. Yeah. No. You keep those. <laughs> my last question to you. Okay. Okay. Because there's a line in this book that really, really bothers me. Mm-hmm. That I that I need to present to you. Mm-hmm. You write what I've described here. And in the previous chapter is a prediction, not the result of insider knowledge, psychic powers, or divine revelation. It is simply a description of what, to me and many others, seems likely to unfold. It is not our country's unavoidable destiny. Now that comes in the book as you describe the potential for a civil war, an unraveling of American democracy. I read that quote at the end of this conversation. Yeah. Because I think it applies to what you've described. And yet that last line, it is not our country's unavoidable destiny. Right. But I have to tell you, after 90 minutes of you and I sitting here, I don't know if I believe mm. that you believe those words. <laughs> I didn't think he was going to say that. Um, let me tell you what I believe. I believe that most collectively white America hasn't been able to develop a living embodied anti-racist culture and has no interest in it collectively. I think there's too many advantages to being complacent for white bodies. But I also believe that I am here because there were people, my people and peoples like me who believe in liberation who were going to make sure that the gnawing continued. And if the gnawing was from the outside, cool. I see myself in being in a long line of people who wanted to make sure that white folks didn't escape the gnawing, whether it was external or not. So I believe that white bodies have gone through a mass education around white supremacy and white body supremacy. And they're going to have to create a mass re-education in living embodied anti-racist culture building. I believe that it is not inevitable that what I think is going to happen is going to happen. I don't believe it's inevitable. I believe that, however, the way that I'm looking at the writing on the wall and, and to see how America, time after time after time, could have made different choices and didn't have to sell out black and indigenous people. I believe that they will continue to do that. The writing on the wall reads as what to you? The writing on the wall reads that America 
has never and will never learn its lesson because it's the right thing to do. That when America does learn its lessons as it relates to race, it's because bodies of culture said, you will not do this anymore. And then that sets the line. I will tell you bodies of culture are extremely tired playing that role. And I have hope that maybe there's some dogs, like I said, in the white community that sees that their children's lives is positioned in a way to where if they don't grow this up, they're going to continue to pass down the sickness of white body supremacy down to their children's children's children. So the writing is on the wall. The writing is not necessarily in permanent marker. It sounds like what you're hoping for is that we don't have to do the thing that you had to do in middle school. I'm hoping. (laughs) I'm prepared either way. As am I. As always, thank you for uh, forcing me to not let that gnawing go away and to sit in that discomfort. May it last. Mm. Resma Menicum, thank you very much. Thank you, bro. Appreciate you. That was good. our show special thanks this week to sam mattingly and of course resma menicum you can get his new book the quaking of america wherever you do your reading to learn more about resma and his work visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com there on the site you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes including our last talk with resma we've also sat with malcolm gladwell Michael Lewis, Claudia Rankin, Noam Chomsky, Gloria Steinem, Dolores Huerta, Representative Ilhan Omar, and Jenea Future Khan. To listen to those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop us a line at mail at talkeasypod.com. That's mail at talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. If you'd like to support us in other ways, just sharing the show with a friend, a family member, anyone that you think may like what we do here, It helps us out a lot. If you don't want to do any of that, you can simply give us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever platform you listen to. Reviewing the show on those platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at iHeartMedia. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. 
I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with John Early. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.